Welcome to American Players Theater Talk Backs to Go. I'm Buzz Kemper, and I invite you to take a walk up the hill with Orange Schroeder and me as Orange chats with director James Bonin about APT's production of Private Lives by Noel Coward. Hi, we're here discussing uh, the wonderful Noel Coward comedy Private Lives with director James Bonin, and uh, I thank you for coming here today to talk to us. One of the things that people find fascinating about Private Lives is that it was apparently written very quickly. Uh, Noel Coward was um, convalescing in Shanghai and had two weeks to think about things, and then, at least according to rumor, he wrote this play in just four days. Do you think that's true? I think it could be, because he was, when he got an idea, uh, actually, Private Lives is, is, is an, in a way, an exception in that frequently he would just start writing instantly. But in this case, he, feeling himself a little more mature, and I think he was felt pretty certain about the idea. The idea had come to him about a month earlier, as he describes in his uh, wonderful autobiography. He spent four hours just sort of laying out the play, because he had an idea for himself and for his dear friend Gertrude Lawrence to play these two parts that have gone on to become extremely famous roles that most comic actors of a certain age, you know, are desperate to play. Um, but in, but he intentionally did not write the play right away because he wanted it to kind of germinate. And then, yes, he was ill with the flu in Shanghai on a long uh, eastern trip. And he, over the course of four days, he says, he wrote what is, in essence, the play we know now. You mentioned about the roles being famous, and, of course, um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are among the actors who have played them. I actually saw them play Did you see that? Well, <laughs> tell us about that. Uh, well, it was at a time of their lives, and I think both personally and professionally, where I don't think either of them were at the top of their game. You know, so it became, a, it was more of a spectacle than, than real. I felt like the play got lost a little, maybe. Um, but it was was absolutely fascinating to watch. <laughs> and, and tell us about APT's choice of uh, characters or actors to actors, play these roles. <clears throat> well, they're actually uh, Jim DeVita is going to play the male role, and Deborah Staples will play the female, the, the parts of Elliot and Amanda, um, who most people know this, but they were married at one point had a rather volatile relationship, divorced, and now five years later they've each married someone else and uh, improbably enough have chosen to take their honeymoons at the same hotel in Deauville on the coast of France. Um, And even uh, more improbably, which is of course what makes it so comedic, their suites are adjoining uh, with terraces that uh, conjoin. So they end up running into each other on the terraces of their apartments, shall we say, on the nights of their wedding. It's, so it's actually, literally their wedding nights to other people. So there is a bit of a conceit that we have to accept. Oh, I think so. Um, <clears throat> I actually am going to tell the, the actors the first day a story of a, a woman that I know who basically did what happens in the play. So, I mean, it does happen occasionally. Did, um, did what happened in the play, including 
the trading of um, well she didn't she uh, didn't go back to an old husband but she she met a man three weeks before she'd been engaged for seven years and she met a man three weeks before she was to be married and they both agreed that they were just made for each other but there was nothing to be done for, about it and then the man turned up at the wedding and so she told her long-suffering uh, now husband of six hours that she was going to d- annul the marriage and marry somebody else, and she <laughs> did. So I'm just, I just point that out to say that people do crazy, impulsive things, and so... And, and if you have four days, could you make that into a play, James? Alas, no. <laughs> <laughs> it would make a good one, I think. I, it probably would, but I'm afraid she might uh, take offense to my borrowing her story. But, uh, and Noel Coward wrote a song for this play, um, uh, Someday I'll Find You. Are we using music in the APT version? Yes. There, there's some wonderful use of, of music, and it's, um, there's a lot of different ways you could use it. There's a number of versions of the text <coughs> Excuse me. that um, and I think we're going to choose to have Deb sing it just a little bit in the first act uh, to kind of plant the seed of the of the of the of the song, and then in the second act, there'll be a, uh, and I'm using it this word in uh, quotation marks for those of you who are listening, uh, a duet uh, in the second act. But it's um, it probably won't be a conventional duet. Uh, Coward, uh, and both Coward and Gertrude Lawrence were uh, famously sort of entertainers as well as actors, and they're both quite good singers, and, and Coward in particular. He wrote many, 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 many famous songs. Um, but uh, since that's um, a situation that we do, don't necessarily have in this case, and I think it's frankly a good... I mean, the trade-off we're making for Jimmy's magnificent acting is that he, he, he's, you know, he's not a fan of singing, so I'm torturing him a little to make him think he's going to sing, but probably he won't. <laughs> <laughs> and and speaking of the second act, uh, that was rather controversial when the play was written, wasn't it? There was a fear of censorship. Yeah, it, it's a fairly um, well. What happens is 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 very blunt, and and some of it is sexual, uh, not in any overt way that people are used to now. But in 1930, it was um, pretty risque. Well, plus just the behavior itself was risque. Yeah, I mean, these are not the most likable people in the world. They're two of the funniest people that you'll ever meet, but they are ferociously selfish. I mean, just sort of astonishingly selfish. And so you, you know, I think, I think one of the things that makes the play so magnificent is the kind of high wire act that Coward is walking trying to hang on to the audience's affection for these two people when they're really doing basically hideous things to other people. <laughs> and, and these other people, for the most, for the majority of the play, seem quite normal and nice. <clears throat> so it's, um, you know, I, I'd say I love that. As a, as a director and as actress, that's a hugely fun challenge to see how far you can push that. Because you can't really apologize for what they're doing. I mean, if you try, in other words, if you tried to make them nicer people, I mean, you know, you just say, like, that'd be like making Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, you know, charming people <laughs> that live next door to you. I mean, you know, the play would just sink like a stone. So, 
And and we don't have to worry so much about the censorship, but I understand that at the time that uh, that he was trying to get it put on stage, Noel Coward himself uh, acted it out at St. James Palace in order to um, right. Well, the censorship was very very strong then, and 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 if the sense if the Lord whatever I forget what his name was, but if he decided you weren't going to put the play on, there was there was no going back. And what know? year are we talking? Nineteen thirty. 1930 in, yeah. in England. Yeah, in England, yeah. yeah. Um, and what can you tell us about Coward? I know that you always uh, are a careful researcher of what you work with. Well, see, I think he was at the height of his powers in 1930. Uh, he he was, but but I you know I think what's what's fascinating about this particular play and one of the reasons that it that it's so uh, durable is that I think he, he, like many people, was, was very strongly affected by what was happening in the world at the time and how much England and Europe had changed due to World War I and how the class system had sort of collapsed. And, uh, but I remember, he, he was basically writing the play right after the, the stock market collapsed all over the world. So because his investor had made careful investments, he hadn't lost a whole lot of money. But many, many people that he knew had lost all their savings. And I think underneath this play is that kind of desperation and fear that you know the world that you always expected was going to be the same suddenly isn't. And of course, then there's always then there's this looming. I think he all you know he was very as he would say, patriotic. Uh, and he, you know, he got very involved during World War II and rode on uh, destroyers and wrote a famous movie about destroyers uh, and acted in it. But, uh, I mean, so I think even in 1930, people knew that the armistice of World War I had not solved anything. And so there was this looming other thing that might be out there, which of course, 10 years later was the horror of World War II. So, you know, you find these people doing these selfish, intensely personal things in 1930, right, you know, halfway through, but but you sort of, one way you can excuse them is because their worlds have changed and they're afraid. You know, they're afraid that so much is going to change and so you just want to grab for any kind of pleasure any kind of sense of connection that you can because suddenly the world that everybody thought was connected immutably isn't. And so, you know, I think that, that I, to me, that's what makes the play so astonishingly funny, you know, because yeah, I'm not saying that you sit there in the audience like you would in an Arthur Miller play and be constantly reminded of what the world outside of these rooms is. But they, but the actors playing the characters would obviously know. And it's like any other time when you're sloppy in life, if you can look back with a certain kind of clarity at your behavior, it's usually because of something that's, you know, that's driven you to that point and you're acting outside of your normal behavior because of whatever influences are pushing in on you. And it's set about the same time that Downton Abbey is is heading towards, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think Downton Abbey last season wasn't it nineteen twenty four? I think yeah. yeah. So, so not quite yeah, there so yet, yeah, we're not quite there yet. But you know, the the a, a really a wonderful example I think of would be F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel Tender as the Night, you know, which is set in Europe and around around that time, and he struggled to write it for ten years, and it's you know it's about people who are kind of 
adrift. And, do you know, I mean, I think, as we all know, from, if you watch Downton Abbey, there was a kind of order to their lives that was very, very reassuring. And, you know, you went one place at one time, another place at another time, and you went to London for the season, and you went, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it is, I, I see, I just think all of that's gone now. And these are just people who have enough money to not work all the time, and they're just, um, they want to be, they want to be happy. They want it, they want their old lives back. I, again, I'm speaking entirely as, as, as someone who's adding this layer of psychology to them that I'm not so sure that they're acting on overtly, but, it, but it's got to be there underneath. And I, I really do think that's what has given the play its lasting power and it's and it's so much to me more compelling a play than some of his lesser you know the plays that don't take that that don't make people act quite so outlandishly um and th- those plays don't appeal to me much because uh, just as a director because they're you know they feel like a little music box that you wind up and you open the lid and then it plays and everybody knows what it's going to play and and this and one feels got, like you never know what's going to happen yeah, next. Yeah, see that? Yeah, there's just this this sort of terror of uncertainty of how far will they push this that I just, is great. And, and of course, working with Jimmy and Deb, who I've worked with many times before, you know, I think we've, this may be our fifth or sixth play together, um, you know, and, and frequently when they're, you know, they were Hermione and, and, um, Leontes and they were Beatrice and Benedict for me. You know, we all have, we've had a great long history of working with uh, volatile uh, pairings. So I think it'll be great fun. Thank you so much. I'm sure it's going to be the ultimate pairing. (laughs) Thank you, James. Thank you so much. Talk Backs to Go is a production of Orange Tree Imports, Pro Video and Film, and Audio for the Arts. Your host is Oren Schroeder. I'm Buzz Kemper. Our music is by Steve Tibbetts and is used by permission of the artist. Please find us on iTunes and YouTube under APT Talkbacks to Go. Thank you for listening. Thank you.